Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love cats and dogs, which is what this show is all about, talking to experts and authors about the animals who share our world. Thanks for listening on Long Island's only NPR station, WLIW-FM 88.3, where Dog Talk originated 13 years ago. You can download podcasts of almost 700 previous shows in the podcast library at radiopetlady.com, along with my other Pet Talk podcast radio programs. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible in part by Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately owned company founded and run by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado whose life has been devoted to feline wellness. Dr. Elsie himself created all his specialized litters, from cat attract to low dust and long hair, to meet the needs of every cat, as well as their human family members. Dr. Elsie is also the founding sponsor of the New York Cat Film Festival. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes a wide variety of high-protein recipes for cats and dogs, using human-grade ingredients prepared in a human food facility. Because the Foreman family respects the nutritional needs of cats as obligate carnivores, they make only wet food in cans and pouches so cats can avoid dry, carbohydrate-based kibble. I am an interesting bunch of guests today. Adam Parascandola is the Senior Director of the Animal Rescue Team at the Humane Society of the United States and Senior Director of Animal Protection and Crisis Response for Humane Society International. But I'm going to be talking to him about why he goes all the way to San Francisco to Muttville and adopts senior chihuahuas. Chris Johnson will be here. She's the program safety awareness manager for the United States Postal Service. We're going to talk about dog bite prevention. And Mikhail Lindnord will be here with his book, Rescue Dog Tales, the story of Arthur and 16 dogs who found forever homes. I am so pleased to invite Adam Parascandola to the show. I've known his name for years, and I've seen pictures of him on the Humane Society of the United States website and other places, I think almost always holding a chihuahua. He's the director of the animal rescue team at HSUS, as well as a senior director of the animal protection and crisis response of Humane Society International. Adam, I'm so glad to meet you. Your name came up when I was interviewing Sherry Franklin recently about her fabulous rescue, Muttville in San Francisco, that takes in only senior dogs and has been for a number of years the beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival when it comes to San Francisco, back in the days when people, you know, could go to the movies. And I said, what do you mean Adam was just there getting another dog? I said, Adam, as if I knew you, which I didn't. She said, oh, yes, I think it must be his third by now. So can you talk about your personal journey as someone who leads the team into the world's most awful places, whether they're man-made disasters of hoarding and, and abuse or natural disasters of whatever nature throws at us. How did you wind up as a guy who lives in Las Vegas but travels the country on behalf of HSUS and the world on behalf of HSI? How did you wind up being a Muttville adopter? Well, yeah, uh, I, I think it, you know, it goes back uh, uh, several years. So before I worked for 
um, Humane Society of the United States. I was the director of Oakland Animal Services, which is the animal oh. control and the animal shelter there in Oakland, California. And um, and this was in 2007 I started there. It's the same year that Muttville started. And, and um, I'll never forget the 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 day that I discovered, I learned about Muttville, we had a, a young man who was surrendering a um, schnauzer that he obviously loved very much. He was in tears, but the schnauzer had a sort of ongoing medical skin condition um, uh, problem that he just couldn't afford to treat. I think he was, you know, in, in college. and. Right. Um, so he was really heartbroken. This was a probably 12-year-old dog. He was a little grumpy, a little snappy. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so this gentleman surrendered him. And, I, and after he left, I was saying to the staff, I was like, what are we going to do? Like, how, you know, is there a rescue? We'll take this dog. You know, he's got skin conditions. He's old. He's snappy. He's grumpy. I mean, he wasn't, you know, right. aggressive. But, you knew, that, but you, knew you'd have, you knew you'd have almost no chance of adopting him out from your shelter. He wasn't going to make Exactly. Exactly. He wasn't going to make friends very quickly. Right. So then somebody said to me, well, we should call Muckville. And I was like, well, what's Muckville? And they said, well, they're like an old dog rescue. And, you know, I've worked in sheltering previously. I've been a humane officer for about 13 years and, and oversaw some programs in D.C., I'd never heard of this concept. And so Sherry showed up. Then I think it was just Sherry and a couple other people. That's right, at her house. Yeah, exactly, at her house. Yeah, so she came to the shelter and she looked at the dog and she said, oh, yeah, this this is exactly the kind of dog that Muttville loves. And I was thinking, (laughs) really? (laughs) You love that. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what makes her a hero, right? I mean, when she did this and when you, too, were thinking, well, is there another out for this dog? Nobody was adopting senior dogs. They were, if anything, ditching them, discarding them. I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, I love this one, or I didn't love him so much, and he's peeing in the house, or, you know, I don't know, his eyes no good. So the idea was right. really fresh at that point. Now Senior Dog Rescues, thank God, Gray Muzzle Organization funds dozens, hundreds of them. But it was a pretty unique idea, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. They, you know, they took many, many dogs from us, and as they did other shelters in the um, in the Bay Area, and um, you know, eventually, of course, they got the space they have uh, San Francisco SPCA, you know, and the, uh, the the shelter there, space there, which is amazing. But yeah, when I used to go. Um, either bring dogs to Sherry's. Sometimes I bring them to her house and, you know, she had sort of like the downstairs was all big old, the big old, old big dogs. Right. And then upstairs was like little dogs. It's such an amazing, peaceful place. And they very quickly became my favorite rescue and, um, you know, have remained, I'd say my favorite rescue, not to, you know, there's a lot of great rescues Understood. out there. I don't want Understood. to them, but, but something about Muttville and, successes they've had with adopting senior dogs and so for me i mean i've I've adopted senior dogs like i took home a lot of old chihuahuas from oakland when i worked there you did um, so so just explain was was there something about the old chi chi that just put a smile on your face because they could be a wee bit snappy too some of them yeah well i think so you know i started with older dogs even before i came to oakland when i was in dc i mean one thing is just that like you know well puppies are just a handful right oh, <laughs> so they sure i are. sort of like this idea of 
you know, taking in an old dog and, and letting them have, you know, a few good years. But I'll tell you, the first old dog I took in was an 11-year-old with, um, I took her in from D.C. She'd been a hoarding case, um, a starvation case, and she wow. had, like, mammary tumors. You know, we had to remove, remove one eye. She had to have her, all her teeth out and her jaw rebuilt because she Whoa. was, like, a doctor mix. And, and uh, we thought, well, we'll give her a few years. Um, yeah, she was 11 then, and, and uh, we had her till she was 21. <laughs> So Are you kidding like a me? Childhood. Oh yeah, my goodness! She said, "She said, well, I really like this. Like, I'm not going anywhere. I, wow. I, you know, I had crappy first eleven years. I'm enjoying <laughs> these." <laughs> but isn't that great? So, so that's what really inspired you. Here's a dog, all the teeth out, jaw rebuilt, losing an eye, breast cancer, and probably not the prettiest dog on the block. And you were like, "No, no I think I, I think I can do this. I think I can do this." That's so cool. Yeah. So I really, you know, and that's part of the reason that I love Muttville instantly is because, you know, I've always really liked the sort of older dogs and, um, you know, small dogs. Like, I, I had been a big dog person, right? Like, I had a Malamute and a Husky mix. Cool. Um, but, but once I started working in the shelters, like the, the shelter, you know, the sort of traditional shelter environments, so traumatic. I mean, it's traumatic all around, but right. so traumatic for small dogs, right? Yes. Um, that I've never really been a small dog guy, but I just felt so terrible for them, like huddled oh. in the corner, shaking, you know, with oh. all these noises, and their only defense is to be really snappy. So, yes. I, I mean, I right. love the snappy, snappy <laughs> chihuahuas. They used to call them at Oakland. They would call them Adam Specials, and they would page, and they would say, we have an Adam Special no, at the front desk because everyone else was afraid to handle them. Wow. <laughs> so I'd have to go up there. And, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so, what a cool you know, story. Kind of, yeah, so Muffville was kind of a natural match, and so there were a couple of times over the years where I adopted from them. I mean, like one was a case that we had um, – they had taken dogs from a case that we worked at HSUS. It was a, it was a sort of Chihuahua rescue gone bad in in Southern California, and um, we had I had managed to convince the woman to surrender about two hundred of the dogs. Oh my and, god, two hundred! Uh, yeah, it was it was a lot, but. Uh, and Muttville took you know took a bunch, and then I ended up I went back east, but then I ended up adopting and having my friend fly out one this little chubby old man called chubby <laughs> dancer because he, he used to dance like on his hind feet and oh. you know when you would go in her house she had all of these x-pens where she lived that she would have these like chihuahuas plopped in like you know groups of them and he would stand on there and kind of like you know wiggle because he's wagging his tail and oh. so and then recently actually we we adopted from from them we uh our, our old one of our older dogs from oakland she had been uh, dropped in night drop a chihuahua with a, a cast and um, oh, could you just we, back up for a minute and ex- and just yeah. explain night drop for a minute this is i i once interviewed a guy on the show years ago who was the lone officer in some small town somewhere in america where there was a shoot and people could dump dogs of any size, age, or condition down the chute, and they all landed on each other. And in the morning, he was the only one to come and figure out who was who and what was broken and dead. And it just was the most horrible thing I've ever heard. There is an actual night chute in a, in a city in America? 
Yeah, well, there's a, there's a lot of them, but they're not really quite like that. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, many, many, many municipal really? shelters have a sort of night um, night drop. So what this is is it's like a bank of cages where the doors are, you know, one just, way. Um, cracked open yeah and so once somebody puts an animal in there shuts the door it locks automatically and can't be reopened so each animal is in its own separate wow separate cage um That's and then in the morning you know that idea wow yeah yike yeah well the thing is if you don't have it like when i worked in seattle animal control we didn't have it but people just tie up dogs all over the you know, right, or let them awful. loose in the yard yeah, there. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's not, there's no great solution. And, right. Um, ours, ours, I don't think, had a camera, unfortunately. Some places use a camera, which is good, just in case, you know, a dog is dumped in bad condition and you right. need to follow up because, of mm-hmm. course, you're trusting people to leave their information and most people don't, right? Like, Of course. These are people that I think a lot of times they don't really have the, they're embarrassed or whatever to come yes. in during the day. I mean, some are just strays in the apartment. If they picked up strays, put them in there. Um, but, uh, but you know, a lot of them were people, I think, who just, you know, they were embarrassed to surrender them during the day. So they would Understandable. put them in there. Understandable. It's, it's, it's humiliating. And, you know, because someone's going to ask yeah. you, well, why can't you keep them? And we'll give you some free food. And they're like, no, my life is a mess, a disaster who knows what drugs abuse poverty but i could see how it'd be embarrassing and humiliating so i now that you explain what the night drops like it isn't down a chute at least landing on a bunch of other no, animals. where they all land up together can you imagine i mean i you've know. seen it all yeah. so what i'm nothing i yeah. could say would surprise you and and i the thing that does surprise me is that your entire life has been spent seeing animals in some pretty dire conditions and one could say the worst of of the human side of the of the pet equation, and yet you don't seem upset or judgmental or critical. I, I guess that's how you survived this, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's um, I learned kind of early on. So I started out as a humane law enforcement officer in, in Washington D.C. in the in the mid '90s, which was a really really rough time for D.C sort of the murder capital of America at the time, right? Yes. Coming out of the crack epidemic. Yes. And, um, you know, and and I realized from, like, um, working with officers who'd been there a long time that um, the real risk of kind of, um, you know, becoming burnt out to, to an extent where you sort of lose, you know, all kind of compassion or yes. empathy for people, if not Correct. animals. I mean, mm-hmm. many times, you know, they might still have it for animals. And, um, and you know, and I always thought to myself, okay, if I ever reach that point, like, then it's time to leave the field, right? right. Like, it's, it's just, yes. because it's not, I mean, you know, there are definitely, you know, really terrible, you know, people out there who do terrible things. But for the most part, I think that people are, you know, they're just, they come from a different, you know, a different background than, yep. than I come from. They, you know, have suffered things in their lives many times. You know, many times you see what we were witnessing was certainly not like intentional malicious, um, you know, abuse. I mean, there was some of that. <laughs> right, but, but, but hoarding, you know, hoarding itself, you know, you think, well, how did this happen? It does happen. It happens all the time. Yeah. You start out exactly. thinking you're being a good person rescuing three chihuahuas, 
X time later, you've got 100, 200 of them, and and you're overwhelmed, and the animals are all uncared for, but you never meant it to be a mess. There, you know, it's you need social services for humans and, and social workers and mental health and exactly. all kinds of things. That's so great that you realize that you had to, you always had to hold on compact onto compassion. Yeah, and it's and it, I mean it's there even you know even in our our work in you know some of the most horrific you know places like the dog meat trade and yes you know these are you know these are people generally a lot of the farmers in Korea the dog meat farmers they sort of start out because they love dogs, they're either Tosa, like, breeder, a lot, of, a lot of guys breed and, you know, use Tosa for fighting in, in Korea, or did back in the day. I right. think it's kind of been cracked down on a little more, and, but, you know, they're, they, you know, they love these dogs, and, um, you know, some of them started off breeding dogs for pets because they really love dogs, and, you know, but then they're sort of making a living, and so it gets into the selling dogs to the market, um, you know, many of them would probably not, would be horrified to like, like most of them don't even go to the market. You know, somebody just comes and picks up the dogs. And I think, you know, that's for them to kind of separate it a little bit. And, you know, but even these people that work in the market, I, I just don't, I just don't believe that there's that many sort of like, you know, fundamentally evil or psychopathic people I out agree. there, right? I agree. And it's very, and as you say, it's cultural. Yeah. And in our case, you know, we, we, we decide, and there have been a number of brilliant books written, why do we eat some animals and, and not others and revere some and not others? So the judgment doesn't really hold a place in this. We only have a little bit more time, but tell us about your most recent Muttville, I assume, a chihuahua. Okay. At what Adam special yeah. is living with you now? <laughs> well, so we had uh, we had lost one of our dogs. Like I was saying, this is a dog that came in Oakland, was dropped yes. in, in night, in, dropped with a cast. Um, we ended up that leg amputated at, at UC Davis, used to work with us. And, um, and anyway, we ended up adopting her. We had her for many years, but she got a brain tumor and, and eventually she passed away. And so after, you know, a few months, we thought, well, we really need like you know, we just sort of need someone else. We have three other dogs. Wrong. It's not like we were dogless, but um, and well, you know, and we kind of played around with it, and then we let it go. And then I saw this picture because Muttville, we we support them. We're monthly donors, and so nice. I get emails from them, and then I always click on and look through. And so we saw this little um, this little Chihuahua. Her name was Coconut on there, and she just had the biggest ears you can imagine, and like. <laughs> The picture when she was standing, she looked like a a deer or something. She has a really long neck, really long legs, very skinny kind of. Um, and so then they so showed Stephanie. Stephanie's usually the the sensible one. She's usually the one that says no. <laughs> that's your that, that's your 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 spouse, significant other, and she didn't say no. Exactly. No, no. She was like she, you know, she just fell in love with pictures, and so then we wrote. Sherry and of course they were super excited and so actually my wife is the one who flew she flew from Vegas to San Francisco her name's Elsie now and picked up Elsie and and brought her back it turns out she's not quite as 
senior as we thought she was. She's Ooh. quite got a lot of life in her. Oh, boy. <laughs> I can see this is going to be a long Adam and Stephanie special. Adam, we've run out of yeah. time, but I just think you're a great inspiration uh-huh. to everyone on how to add animals to your life and, and how to look at the way other people are living with their animals in a more compassionate, kind way. Thank you for being here. Thanks for all the fantastic work you do in animal welfare and that you've devoted your life to. We we salute you and we salute all the coconut Elsies who come into your life now and forever. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you in part by Evermore Pet Food, a privately owned company making fresh dog food shipped to your door. Evermore is owned by two women who mix fresh organic vegetables along with fresh, humanely raised meat, beef, lamb, chicken, or turkey to make nutritionally balanced dog food. After low-temperature cooking, the sealed pouches are frozen and shipped right to your home to be served as a complete meal or as part of your pet's diet. To prove that all the ingredients are entirely human-edible, the owners ate Evermore food for a month. This show is also supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, who have combined science and nature to create a wide range of products for animal wellness. Earth Animal's Nature's Protection line provides flea and tick solutions to keep away parasites without exposing your dog to toxic chemicals. Earth Animal Zen Pens come in a unique dispenser of their CBD gel, dosed precisely for each pet and made from full-spectrum hemp oil with naturally occurring CBD to calm dogs and cats with anxiety. I am delighted to welcome to the show Chris Johnson. She's been with the United States Postal Service for 33 years. At the moment, she has a pretty important job. She's the Safety Awareness Program Manager. And when you consider that there's 600,000 or more employees of the United States Postal Service, she has a lot of people's safety to worry about. Dog bites are one of the biggest issues, and I I think you've put together some really great talking points, Chris, and some really good things for people to think about who think their dog is not a menace, and yet their dog might very easily bite a postal worker because the owner doesn't understand exactly the dynamic between a postal worker reaching out to a child or to an adult family member and being perceived as a threat. So well done on putting this together. Thank you. Now, when when you got this job of safety awareness program manager, was were dog bites the biggest problem? I mean, certainly the postal workers have had many scares over time. The anthrax, uh, you know, I guess bomb threats, even COVID nineteen has created a, a lot of threats to them. But are dog bites over time the biggest danger to to workers in the postal service? Yes, ma'am, they are because they're consistent. Yeah, we have dogs. We have dogs all year long, every day, each year. Right, so they're consistent. Well, one good thing is, and I don't, I don't. Maybe you get some of the credit for it. Is the numbers have gone down, but dog bites were nearly six thousand in twenty nineteen. You know, you can say, "Oh, that's good. That's two hundred fewer than twenty eighteen. But for the six thousand people who were bitten, it's pretty scary. I don't. Have you ever been bitten by a dog? I was once. It's terrifying. It doesn't even matter if it's a a big scary Rottweiler or a Chihuahua. A dog bite hurts. It's scary and it's dangerous. Have you ever been bitten? No, ma'am. I have been lucky enough to never been bitten. Good. I well, have been scared plenty of times, but never bitten. So that's good. But you're. But you obviously are there on behalf of the the carriers but not so much probably carriers who are putting mail into a mailbox or a mail slot, but those who have to interact with the recipient of the mail. I mean, that's where the problem comes about, is it not? 
It, that, yes, ma'am, it does. They open up the door and the dog will, We you don't know how many dogs we have that just, when the owner opens up the door, the dog rushes it. I mean, they will blow right by their owner yep. and jump on the carrier. Yep. And the person can say, I'm going to guess, I'm going to make this up, but my guess is knowing dog owners as I do. Oh, he's really friendly. Really? He's a hundred pounds of even a Labrador retriever can knock somebody over and just the the fear factor alone is enough. So an attack could be anything that's an assault. I mean, if a person were to rush at you and jump on you and push you, that would be assault and battery. That's what the dog's doing, even if there's no teeth involved, right? I mean, from the point of view of the recipient of that welcome greeting. Yes, ma'am, because, you know, some people may not be dog lovers and they're afraid of even the little chihuahuas yep and then how afraid would they be if a great dane or a mastiff come out on them they'd be petrified and and to be honest a dog lover a a wise dog lover and and knowledgeable person knows that chihuahua sized dog can be more dangerous than a big guard looking dog i mean bless all the the owners of chichis and the rescuers of chichis but they bite it's sort of part of their nature, and terriers bite, but certainly chihuahuas do. So something that looks small and cute and fun has just as many teeth and can have just as much bite pressure. Cocker spaniels are darling looking. I, I, I've, I've had one, and a vet once said to me that, I don't know if this is true or not, but the bite pressure per pound is greater than a, than a pit bull. So a couple of the things you, you want people to be aware of is the idea of closing the dog into another room with a door, a closed solid door before opening the door because dogs will go through a plate glass window or a screen door to attack a visitor that they perceive as alien or threatening, which is really not their job to make that decision. The idea of having a visual barrier so the dog doesn't see the carrier, does that seem to be the biggest safety issue? Oh, yes, ma'am. If we, if the customer put their dog in another room with a closed door before they ever open the front door to speak to the carrier or take the mail or anything from them, we would, our dog bites would be, I'm sure, cut in half easily. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us think, I, I also, again, from veterinarians know this, I know more veterinarians than I know almost any other kind of profession, that the number of times they've been bitten by an owner who says, oh, she hasn't done that in a long time. Good grief. Or, oh, she's never done that before, at which point you know they're actually lying. But people don't manage the mouth and teeth of their dog with enough seriousness. They seem to think it's just kind of random if something might happen, as opposed to really monitoring a dog's natural instinct, which is to go at something or to something, if, if it's not just perceived as dangerous, but just different, like the carrier handing over a box. I mean, I had that happen. I know you're not here to protect the FedEx and UPS drivers, but all carriers are carriers of something into the home to sometimes be handed to the homeowner. And in that moment of handing over a box, the dog doesn't know that's from Amazon and has dog bones in it, for example. It perceives it as perhaps a weapon of something that's a threat and they go after the hand that's delivering it. So you also talk about children in the notes that you sent out to the, to the national media and that children are perceived by dogs often as something to be protected. So a child should not be involved 
in taking or receiving anything from a postal carrier if the dog is not shut away. Do you find that the, the child-involved bites seem to have a special aspect to them? Well, it's one of those things when a kid comes running to the carrier to get the mail from them, and they're all excited right. and hyped up. The kid's excited, the dog's excited, and the letter carrier who may be leaning out of their vehicle may be threatening, and the dog right. says, whoa, what are you doing? Right. And then jump and bite the carrier's arm or hand as he's giving the mail to the to that child. Or the face, I hate to say, Chris, because when I think of, of my mail carrier, she comes in an open-sided vehicle, doesn't have a window, you know, it has a half door, like a, like a barn door, and because my dogs know her and they're cool and she's cool, they and they're big, they stand up at her window to say hi to her and lick her and, you know, hope there are dog bones in the Amazon box. But I could easily see how a dog of any size could fly up and attack any part of the carrier who's seated and is basically a, a sitting duck. I guess that's more of a country kind of way of delivery mail as opposed to the foot soldiers. Now, I saw that the numbers in California of dog bites are astronomically higher than anywhere else. And I remember when I lived in California, the Beverly Hills carriers did a great deal on foot. Maybe they parked their truck but then they'd walk up and down, very, you know, a mile-long street, up one side and down the other. That's just how they didn't start and stop the car or the truck the whole time. Is it the foot delivery postal carriers who are in the most danger? And is, do you think that's why California's are so high? Well, let's put it this way. We have different types of, of delivery, like you just stated. We have the mountain cone that you're talking is rural, but we also have that in the city. But we also have walking and apartments and condos. We actually can get bitten in any of those places. People have dogs in apartments. They're coming down. They're not controlling their, their animal. It bites us. You know, we, we can be bit in any situation, not just being out of the vehicle. Uh, we can be bit, of course, as I was just saying, inside the vehicle. Now, as far as California is concerned, it is the population and the number of dogs that the population in California has. I see. So it's just more people and more people with dogs than elsewhere. It's funny. They must be mostly closed inside houses because I lived there 23 years, and other than going to a couple of places where people could take their dogs off leash, you don't see people, at least in the places I lived, people walking their dogs on a leash or off a leash in town, like Beverly Hills, like Santa Monica. So it, it must be that people are opening their doors and the door opening. There must be lots of dogs behind closed doors is what I'm saying, because you, <laughs> there isn't a sense of a very doggy place. Whereas in New York, you cannot walk down any block, any block in any borough in any neighborhood without seeing loads of dogs. And yet I'm going to guess that those dogs are much more accustomed to strange sounds, strange people, strange vehicles, you know, whether they're a pushchair or a a bike, and maybe they're just more desensitized to the novelty of ding-dong and the door opens. They're just out and about hearing so much uh, in sensory input all the time that they don't overreact. So you actually have some rules in place so that people cannot may not be getting their mail delivered anymore if they have a dog that's threatening, even that hasn't done violence to a person. 
and people will then have to come to the post office. I don't think people know about that, that if, if your dog is a threat, the carrier has the right to say, I'm not, I don't feel safe going there. How often does that happen? That can happen quite often. We do not keep track of it. But any carrier can decide if they're feeling threatened by a dog. Uh, or we can stop the mail not only from an in- individual home. If we have a dog ro- roaming free, let's say in a cul-de-sac, we can stop delivery for that entire cul-de-sac. Good. And then, and then you know, we individuals will call us and they'll say, well, why aren't you delivering our, your mail, my mail to me? It's like, we can't because of the dog or the roaming dog. And they'll say, well, you should have told me. Well, <laughs> I, can't get to you, I can't get to your door. <laughs> to tell please. you that you need to, to tell do, you. Yeah, neighborhood watch, right, Chris? I mean, there, there has to be a yes. sense that it's a community. We're all in the community. Those who serve us, essential workers, frontline workers, secondary workers, we all have to look out for each other. And those of us with dogs have to really put ourselves in someone else's shoes and perceive what that dog's appearance and behavior is is going to uh, elicit from the person who's approaching. I think of a town like San Antonio where I went with the Dog Film Festival, and I was completely flabbergasted at packs of roaming dogs as if it were India or in a developing nation where there's free-roaming, feral-type dogs. San Anto- I, mean, I was told by people who use guide dogs for the blind that they're, it's dangerous for them. Packs of dogs can attack a guide dog, certainly distract them, but even attack them. What do you do in places, since you're national, you would know, in towns like San Antonio, which you would think would be a quite evolved town and w- would not have loose, free-roaming dogs? It's apparently part of the culture. I'm still completely baffled by it myself. What do you do? I mean, that's a town. How, how much of the town do you not deliver to because of that? <laughs> well, you know, you're talking San Antonio. Do you know Houston, Texas, has been our number one dog bite city for the last, what, four years? Wow. That's in Houston. And, and it is stray dogs that are a problem there. And we just work very diligently with the local uh, animal wardens or the law enforcement and the public trying to, you know, it may not be their dog, but it's these stray dogs that we need to, you know, get a handle on so that we can actually go out there and deliver the mail safely and get back all in one piece, not being bitten. Yeah, well said. I mean, it's amazing to me because my understanding is that the dog catcher, the dog warden, going back to sort of leave it to beaver days, I mean, decades ago, that when there were loose, unowned dogs in towns in the United States of America, those dogs were picked up by the dog catcher, which you'd see whether in a Charlie Chaplin movie or Spanky and Our Gang, and be taken to a shelter. And that's what shelters were originally there for, to protect the population from loose dogs who could bite or have rabies or other diseases or hurt an owned dog. So shelters have evolved into something completely other. But how there can be towns in which every stray dog is not picked up for their safety as well as everyone else's is baffling to me. It's what shelters are there for. They're big, they're modern, they're staffed, they're educated, and if a dog is a danger to everybody else and sick, maybe they can take care of it. Worst case scenario, it's locked up, and if it doesn't belong to anybody and nobody will adopt it and nobody will foster it, then it's humanely put to sleep. But to have packs of dogs roaming in civilized cities is just 
absurd because also the dogs are suffering. They don't have a ready source of food and water. They're leaving feces everywhere, and they definitely have diseases which are communicable. So I don't. I'm surprised that USPS doesn't have enough clout in those towns with the police department slash dog warden, of which many towns don't even have a dog warden anymore because there aren't that many loose dogs to pick them all up. How come they just can't all get picked up, spayed, neutered, adopted out, or 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 at least get out of harm's way? What's what's a la- who's lobbying on behalf of the dogs being loose is really what I'm asking. Well, you know that is Houston. Uh, we have a district safety manager down there that you know works closely with them, and you know it's it's like moving a barge. It's hard to get a big barge moved to a right angle in just a moment. So it's an ongoing process for us, working with the locals, trying to get the dogs off the street and informing our customers. And uh, so it, it, it's a work in progress. Well, I'm, I'm actually really sorry to have your workers in harm's way. I'm sorry that these dogs aren't being looked after properly by the cities they're in because many of these dogs are there not by their own design. Actually, none of them are. They've been discarded or kicked out or have were never spayed and neutered and never owned, and they're just procreating. And they're having a miserable life. There's no stray animal having a good life. So those who care about the dogs should do something about it. Those who care about public health and safety should definitely do something about it. So if you live in a town where there's stray roaming dogs, I guess, I don't know, call your council person, call your congressman, call your police chief. I don't know who to call, but they should all get off the street. That would solve the problem in some towns. And those of us who have dogs in our homes... It wouldn't kill us to close the dog in another room before we open the door to a letter carrier. It's not that hard to do, and it removes a lot of danger and tension from the postal worker's life. So, And yourself, if you want to just be selfish from a lawsuit, because it's a clear and present danger, and you had it loose. So, Chris, I, I love the work you're doing. Um, appreciate the letter carriers working through COVID-19. It's, it was it has been a very difficult time and glad that you're there to look after everyone's safety. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Food, which has been making natural, nutritious pet food for 30 years. Merrick Foods never use preservatives, fillers, or anything artificial, and their recipes always start with proteins as the first ingredient. USDA-certified meats and fresh-caught fish, along with real fruits and vegetables. They make many varieties of kibble, crafted with healthy grains or their grain-free recipes, some with nuggets of freeze-dried raw proteins, as well as canned foods, including their new barbecue recipes. The show is also supported by Daily Dose, a daily dental chew with an outer layer that cleans dogs' teeth using a patented ingredient that breaks down the biofilm and harmful bacteria that can accumulate on teeth and gums. Clinical trials have shown a measurable reduction in plaque and tartar on dogs' teeth after regular use. In addition, the core of each chew contains clinically proven supplements to help manage a dog's joints, heart, skin, or anxieties with Daily Dose Dental Chews for every size dog. This show is sponsored in part by Canine Active, a natural mobility supplement used by canine athletes to keep them in top form for agility and dock diving competitions. The supplements can also help senior dogs with the aches and pains of old age move comfortably again. 
Clinical trials of Canine Active show improvement in a dog's mobility within a week without side effects. For senior dogs who are already taking other supplements and medications, Canine Active can be safely used alongside them. I am delighted to have here Mikael Lindnord. He's written a book, Rescue Dog Tales, the story of Arthur, world-famous Arthur, and 16 other dogs who found forever homes around the world. Mikael, you... Your whole life was turned upside down when you were a professional athlete, adventure, uh, I don't know, super triathlons. I don't even understand the incredible things you used to do. But this little dog in Ecuador started to follow you and became not only changed your life there, but changed your life back in Sweden where you live and sort of took over the public's imagination, which I, I guess must have surprised you quite a lot. Yeah, it's like yeah, everything with with Arthur have like we just spoke before we start the interview and and changed my life. It's totally changed my life. I, I had my path, you know. I, I was racing the, around the world for almost twenty years, and I was fighting for the podiums, and I was I was giving all my energy and effort to to the, be the world champion. And what you were the world champion of is a kind of racing that most of us cannot even imagine. You were a member of a team, and there were teams from many other countries, but you raced across extremely grueling conditions. Was the Gobi Desert the one where you found Arthur? I forget. I've read so much about Arthur. I haven't seen the movie, but was that where the race took place that he followed you? That was another, actually, uh, dog story. Uh, from from Gobi, uh, that happened after after oh, me, me and Arthur. But the, the thing is, like um, my my sport called adventure racing, and and that kind of the sport is like you, you race for maybe four hundred miles, and uh, you you do nonstop. So it's up to you and the team how to take you know you know the stops and and breaks and, and how much you want to sleep and stuff because. Everything is like who is the fastest, and then you have transi- uh, transitions. And between the transitions, you have mountain biking, uh, trade running, or, or, or trekking through the jungle, or biking, or paddling, or rope works. So it's like kind of you have to have a course, a set course, and then you have to navigate with with map and compass to take you from A to B start to finish and in, in all the adventures and, and everything that happens you need to solve those problems on the way and i guess that those of us that can't imagine physically doing that we've seen something like it in some of the extreme reality television shows where they put people in jungles or naked on an island and they have i mean extreme conditions and in the end i guess they win some money but for you it was glory and the personal challenge for 20 years but one fine day, this adorable dog, Arthur, who is still with you in Sweden, still living, the book uh, is, is marvelous in telling the juxtaposition of when he followed you and wouldn't leave you and stayed by your side. He just chose you as his human on this earth for no logical reason. And then the juxtaposition of that and your life in Sweden with your wife and kids and the celebrity that you had to juggle which was media attention that was sort of nonstop. And then he had all kinds of illnesses, as dogs do, and has come through all of them. But what's fascinating about this book that you've written, Mikhail, is that 
Many people from around the world, all kinds of nationalities, wrote to you to tell you their story of a dog they had rescued, sometimes from far away, sometimes from just locally. There were people in Australia and England who wrote to you when you chose their story. They were in the same town as the shelter or the rescue group. But how many would you guess? How many people wrote to you and wanted to share their story? You picked the 16 that meant the most to you and you thought would mean the most to a reader. But how many people wrote you? Was it hundreds or thousands? During these years, I have so much letters and messengers to me um, regarding like other dog stories or people telling about their life and stuff like that. So I think it's uh, several thousands. I get that impression because the ones that you picked are pretty dramatic. I mean, people must have, those of us that have not gotten a dog from far away and had to bring it back to our home country, which is expensive and paperwork and complicated, and then the dogs have problems, we may not have had that experience. But when people in England, there's, there's one story about Sparky, 14 years old, from the Dogs Trust in Norfolk, UK, to Norfolk, UK. But there were people that, that took dogs from Beijing and many other locations. How did you choose the, the dogs and their stories that you did include in, in your book? So it's uh, all the books. The first, of course, the, the, the first book about, about Arthur, uh, and now the second book is like, it's a collab, and actually, to be honest, the, the most part was is written by Walt Hudson. I, I'm I'm the voice, and I, I've written a, uh, some of that, but the most part is Walt Hudson and make the amazing work to to make these books. Um, so without her, we haven't have these two really really nice books. They are so, really so, nice. Yeah, and, and then things like to, to have a project like this is not like a one man show. It's not like me picking the stories. It's like a um, first of all, the, the books are coming from uh, two roads uh, in in uh, in the UK, and, and it's a it's a what call it in, in English. Yeah, you have a a, a team, it, you right, know, a team of right. people. So 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 it's so many people that are involved to to choose the stories and stuff like that. So I've been involved in all this pro, pro, process, but you, you know, to read the book and to have it out in the stores there's so many people to work to work with it right that's a really good point just to remind people about arthur and then and then in a moment you can talk about the movie i i had actually wanted some part of the movie in my dog film festival and i couldn't figure out who to write to but now that i have your name i'll talk to you about it separately but the name of your first book is arthur the dog who crossed a jungle to find a home and it's how you went on this 435-mile race through the jungles of South America as an adventure racer, and this dog would not leave you. And you you weave his story then and now, and therefore your story, in amongst the other stories. I'm sure people have asked you so many times, why did Arthur stick with you? This was a skinny dog. He had no food. He was just a little scrap of a dog. And what you were putting yourself through for 435 miles, not even the healthiest, most fit, agility-trained dog could have done, and he wouldn't leave. And you shared your food with him. You shared your sleeping spot with him. But you had you were not necessarily a fanatic dog person, were you, to begin with? 
No, 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 that's the case. Yes. Especially especially people that know me, you know, I haven't had a dog before in my life. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, you know, I, I travel around the world. We have like big sponsorship and, and the pressure for, to deliver because we were like one of the top teams. So we, we were racing. It wasn't um, just and, uh, for fun. It wasn't for personal expression. No. It was a business like the top yes. marathoners in the world. There was money yes. on the line and reputation yes. and, and horrendous conditions. I mean, it was you describe in this book, in the first book, you described it even more the kinds of physical conditions, there wasn't really time to think, how's Arthur doing today, right? So that, that's the thing. He, uh, first when we met, you know, uh, I, I gave him, you know, because the first time I, I looked at him, uh, he was just standing at me, looking at me like two, three meters from me. And I, I remember still that I react like, please don't come close to me. Because he looks so bad, and he even smelled on that distance. So, and, and I can see the sore, like he was bleeding from his back, and he was he was really really bad shape. So, and but he he was he stood still there. So I gave him those meatballs because I was eating meatballs because we were in transition area. And you're and Swedish, you, and because you're Swedish, yeah. you eat meatballs. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I gave him a couple of meatballs. I don't remember exactly how many, but I gave him some meatballs, and and I gave him like maximum ten seconds of my focus, and then I fixed my gear, and then we run away from that transition area, and uh, yeah. So so that's was that that was it. I, I gave him maximum like ten seconds. It's amazing that when, in your case, he stuck with you for four hundred miles. And then because of that devotion to you, which was illogical, who could explain it? You brought him back to Sweden and he's become, when your descriptions of him in Sweden, living in an apartment or a house with a family and two small kids, going into television studios, going to book signings and strangers, this dog does not seem like a dog, much less a stray dog, much less a dog that was a street dog. He has without sounding too gooey and odd, a kind of calm and a kind of clear idea of who he is and who you are and what the next thing is you're going to do. I mean, I once tried to bring my dogs, who are completely socialized and love everybody, into a small television studio, and they just couldn't believe They were terrified. The lights, the people, the equipment, the noise, it was, they were disturbed. And Arthur just took everything in stride. Have have people who are maybe a little gooier than me said to you, well, do you think he's a reincarnation? Do you think he's a spirit of somebody else? Do you ever wonder that, given how undog-like he is in terms of his his confidence and his calm? You have a good, really good point here. Uh, that, that's the thing. It's like, I don't believe in destiny, <laughs> I, you know, but there is something there. I, I don't know. You know, it's his, you know I, I never trained him, um, never tried to, like, make him roll around, you know, stuff like people do with dogs. I've never done that. But still, you know, we, I don't even have a leech when I'm out walking with him. Like, okay, of course, when I've been with the houses, but as long as he has come up and he's, like, Free space, I just let him go without any training, and, and we just go, and he has followed me, and then he's, and then he knows where when the houses start again, and he stops there and wait, and then we put on the leech, and and it's not like 
we haven't trained this. And the thing is, like, also when we, we speak to each other, uh, he just look at me and I look at him, and and you know, you, our communication is like unreal. And you know, I have no experience of this, and, and I haven't like even googled so much like how you do this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's something. Yeah, I think I I I've been. Uh, I I don't know what the English word really is, but I I think I'm the luckiest man in in the world that have get the chance to experience this um, for in, a, in my lifetime. It's, it's, like a, it's like a gift. I think that's, you give me kind of a chill when you say that, Mikhail, because you were not a dog person. You weren't into dogs. You didn't have a dog. You had no experience of living with a dog. I and the people that, you know, listen to me or read what I write, we're all completely absorbed in dogs. Some of us are absorbed in cats, but it's more so dogs. So to see somebody from outside of that dog circle be touched with like a magic fairy wand and be given this interspecies relationship that you were given and you didn't question it and you didn't go crazy around it, but you accepted it. You welcomed him into your life and into your mind and heart. And it's, it's quite extraordinary, those of us that think so much about our dogs and make such an effort we don't get what you have. So it's very touching to have you say that you're lucky. And I do think that some of these other people that adopted dogs from Ecuador, Romania, I mean, the other stories in Rescue Dog Tales are wonderful. People from other countries, maybe they saw the dog when they were in that country or in a picture. So many people say, in the moment I saw that dog, a picture or the real dog, I knew that he or she was the one. That happened to you, but it was really Arthur who chose you and wouldn't let you go. And you're right. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and it is really defined this next part of your life, which is not what you expected. This isn't the guy you were. You weren't a guy that talks to dogs. You were a guy that went 400 miles through jungles and swamps and so forth and, you know, pushed himself to the maximum of human endurance and this dog just walked into your soul. It's pretty amazing. The, these books, I think, are interesting because you don't make a big fuss about it. You don't tell us what I'm saying. You let us figure it out for ourselves, just reading your story. And it's very moving. And I think it's wonderful that you've given a platform to other people who've had a somewhat similar experience of a dog from a different place who's never been inside a home, who's never gone upstairs, who never ate food out of a, out of a bowl. And these dogs accept the, the state of grace that they find themselves in, and they make the people better people. And I think that you're, you're doing a marvelous job to show people just how much an animal can transform your view of the world if you let them. I, I'm sure that's why this has become kind of a mission for you to tell the story and have people be touched by it. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. That's the thing, because... And that's why we also put the effort with Arthur Foundation and that was not anything that we were planned from the beginning, but it was kind of not forced, but that was the only way to, to go, you know? Yes. And, and uh, so it's like, and now when we return to, to Ecuador, I returned with, with, with the team I put out uh, five years ago when we were there last time. And, and to see the changes that, that are made in Ecuador is like, I'm, I'm speechless. This is this is happening five years. You know, they 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 have they have uh, changed the law, 
so now uh, all the stray dogs have the same uh, animal rights that we have in Sweden. Nice. That's incredible. Yeah, this New Year's Eve, they even uh, forbid the rockets and, you know, the firecrackers. Really? For, for, for the animals. You know, that's, that's, that's insane. And, and also, <laughs> when, I, uh, when I was in the December, I was in Ecuador, uh, they even have Crete International Airport. And they actually open up, so it's dog-friendly now. Oh, really? So, yeah, they even have a made... Uh, a dog toilet, like special toilet for dogs. It's like a grass wow. area in wow. the airport. It's obviously what you've done as an ambassador and helping the people in Ecuador treat their animals better, but also allow people outside Ecuador to know about these dogs and adopt them. So the dog needs to be in an airport and needs a place to pee because he's going to a different, better life somewhere else. Mikhail, we've run out of time. What, you, what you've what you lived through is marvelous. Thank you for sharing it. Rescue Dog Tales, the story of Arthur and 16 dogs who found forever homes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And you know you can always reach me with questions or comments at radiopetlady at gmail.com. Don't forget to kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.